tonight we join Joseph back in the king's prison. And remember, he's not alone. In fact, back in chapter 39, verse 21, it tells us the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's hand to his charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's hand because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Father, we see the proof in your word that you were with Joseph. And it is so comforting and so encouraging to us because we are reminded that you promised to be with us. You would never leave us or forsake us. You promised in your word, Lord Jesus, to be with us to the very end of the age. You said you would not leave us as orphans, but that you would come to us. And we believe, I believe tonight, you are here with us. Oh, not here in this limited space, Lord, but, but here with us, that you are with your people and you do not depart. And I am so thankful for that, Lord. And I ask tonight as we now head deeper into the word as we rejoin Joseph as it were in prison that you would remind us of this marvelous truth that you are with us right here, right now and we simply ask your Holy Spirit to teach your word to us in Jesus' most holy name, amen. Picking up with verse one of Genesis chapter 40, then it came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their Lord, the king of Egypt. If your translation says the butler and the baker, it's not butler, it is cup bearer. The one who would bring the cups of wine to Pharaoh, who would offer it, often sampling before him, you know, to protect against possible poisoning or threat to the throne. And the chief baker, he would oversee really all the food that was then presented to Pharaoh. But these two somehow offended their lord, the king of Egypt. We don't know how. We don't know if there was some kind of plot that was hatched against the pharaoh, but he's offended. And so these two are in big trouble. Verse two, pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And so he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them and he took care of them and they were in confinement for some time. Interesting, we can presume there hasn't been a changing of the guard. That is the bodyguard. That is the captain of the bodyguard here is Potiphar. The same Potiphar in whose house Joseph served and Potiphar's wife made that you know, claim against him saying that he had come on to her when truly she had come on to him but she made a big deal out of it. Potiphar had to put Joseph now into prison but Potiphar is the overseer of this prison and Potiphar is the one now who puts Joseph in charge of the chief cup, baker, uh, chief, uh, cup bearer and the baker. That's remarkable. It proves even further that Potiphar saw the Lord was with Joseph, as the last chapter told us. He knew, he experienced firsthand the blessings of God through Joseph. 
He had been aware of the blamelessness of Joseph, even if Mrs. Potts tried to pin a false claim on this young man. But apparently, here we are in the next chapter, and though Joseph is in prison, Joseph is a prisoner that Potiphar still can trust. Two other prisoners looked very similar to Joseph. In Acts chapter four, verse 13, it tells us, as they, that is the Jewish ruling council, observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as, underscore this, having been with Jesus. See, they were with Jesus and it made all the difference. The Lord was with Joseph and it made all the difference. And so these prisoners look very similar to one another, whether it's Joseph or Peter or John, because they've been with the Lord and the Lord is with them. Brothers and sisters, trust that. Have confidence that the Lord is with you. Cling to him. And even if claims are made against you, even if you find yourself in a prison of some sort or another, the truth will out. You just stay with the Lord. You just be confident the Lord is with you. But note this, in verse four, it says the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them and he took care of them and they were in confinement for some time. He took care of them. Joseph here is in charge of the prison. Remember that. He's overseeing the whole thing now. The, the chief jailer doesn't worry about it. He just has Joseph in charge. Joseph is the boss. What does he do? He takes care of them. He is no crime boss positioning himself to lord it over the other prisoners. No, he took care of them and to take care, yeseret in the Hebrew means to serve, to wait upon, or to minister to. I'm gonna give you six things to note about Joseph as we go through these two chapters tonight. And the first is simply, Joseph is a servant of prisoners. He's a servant of prisoners. It reminds me again of Peter and John after they were released. They ran back to their fellowship. They began to pray together. Listen to what they said, Acts chapter four, verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants, your bondservants, the lowest form of servant, may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Joseph is a servant of prisoners. And when you, if you are willing to be a servant of prisoners, guess what? You got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Peter and John had become bondservants of the holy servant Jesus because guess what? Jesus came as a servant of prisoners. You and I, we're prisoners before we came to the Lord, before he found us, before he released us. The Bible says, Jesus said, Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. Isaiah 53, verse 12 says, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Jesus, the servant of prisoners through whom we have our release. And it was Jesus who said, quoting that 
that amazing prophecy of Isaiah 61 verses one and the first half of verse two, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus is the servant of prisoners. As Joseph here is a servant of prisoners. Now, now listen, in a previous study, we counted a number of parallels between Joseph and Jesus. You may recall these, that both pastured their flocks, or pastured, and both put their father first. Both were beloved by their father, hated by their brothers, had their authority rejected. Both were sent out willingly. Both came seeking their brothers. Both were plotted against Both were detained and thrown into a pit. Both bore the payment for redemption. And both Joseph and Jesus deliver Israel by ruling over the nations. So we saw all those parallels before, but there's another significant Joseph to Jesus connection here. And that is this idea of the servant of prisoners. Mark chapter 15, verse 27 says, they crucified two robbers with Jesus, one on his right and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with the transgressors. Think about this. On either side of Jesus, as he hung up on the cross, one criminal mocked him. The other criminal pled for mercy. One life was ended in condemnation. The other life was ended in salvation. And as a matter of fact, Jesus would become judge to one criminal and savior to the other. And the same is true with Joseph. Before we get there, which one is he to you? Is Jesus judge to you? Or is he savior to you? And you know which one it is immediately because you know how you feel about Jesus. You know if Jesus talk makes you uncomfortable, if Jesus talk talk bothers you, if Jesus talk gets under your skin and gets you a little angry, it's because you sense that he's judge. Jesus has all judgment. See, he said all judgment has been given to the son. But the reality is he does not want to judge you, he wants to save you. And you know immediately if Jesus is your savior by how you react to him. You hear his name and you're filled with peace and hope and joy. You light up at the mention of the name Jesus and he's your savior. Which is he to you? Which will he be? By comparison, Joseph is also the servant of prisoners and Joseph will speak words of salvation to one and condemnation to the other. Keep watching for the parallels. Verse five, then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt who were confined in jail both had a dream the same night. Each man with his dream, each dream with its interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. Now, I'm sure that's a common thing in prison, to be dejected. But Joseph notices. He asked Pharaoh's officials, verse seven, who were with him in confinement in his master's house in the prison, 
Why are your faces so sad today? What? <laughs> are you serious? Why are your faces so sad today, Joseph says. Hey, if I'm in prison, I'm not caring about the guy in the next cell block. I'm not really concerned how he's doing. You know, I'm in prison here. At best, I'm not noticing if someone's a little dejected one day, but this says something about the character of Joseph. It says something about the servant of prisoners, that he would even notice in this moment the, the countenance of their faces, that he would have concern. Well, we should know this because he took care of them. He ministered to them. He saw to their needs. He cared for them, this servant of prisoners. The godly person does that. I have a, a dear friend who spent some time incarcerated and shared this with me, that there were those in the prison house who actually cared for other prisoners, prisoners themselves, who actually looked out for others and, and saw when they were down and responded to those needs. It, it kind of surprised me, but, but why, shouldn't, why should it surprise me that if you have the spirit of the Lord, whether you're in prison or not, you're gonna care. The godly person cares for others even in their own confinement. Hey, is that you in this season? Are you the godly person caring for others, though you yourself are being restricted and confined and kept in? This is a great time to practice the attitude of the servant of prisoners. Verse eight, then they said to him, well, we've had a dream, and there's no one to interpret it. Joseph said to them, do not all interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. Joseph is remarkable. Remember I told you that the Jews call him uh, Yosef Hazadik, that is Joseph the righteous. What an amazing man. Remember this, the Bible doesn't tell of a single revelation of God to Joseph visually, auditorily, or even in dreams. But Joseph just knows the Lord. He knows God is with him. He turns to God constantly. In fact, the second thing to note about Joseph tonight is Joseph is not only a servant of prisoners, Joseph is a seer of God, a seer of God. And I'm not just talking about a sage or a prophet. Oh, he, he was that. But Joseph is a man who just sees God everywhere engaged in everything, in every circumstance. And so here in verse eight, he says, do not all interpretations belong to God? This is normal for Joseph. Nearly every single time he opens his mouth, all the way from Genesis 37 through Genesis 50, when Joseph opens his mouth, he declares the immediacy of God in his life. You will note this in those chapters, again, Genesis 37 through 50, 20 times Joseph opens his mouth and makes reference to the immediacy of God, to God's hand in things, to God at work. In fact, I think it's all best summed up in one sentence that Joseph will rhetorically ask his brothers, that is in Genesis 50, verse 19, when he says, am I in God's place? Am I in God's place? God's in his place. Everything else orbits him. Everything else revolves around him. I'm just part of everything else. But Joseph, this seer of God, sees God present in every circumstance, 
Even in the dreams of a cupbearer and a baker, Joseph sees God. Joseph knows God has the answer. And so we'll see Joseph, he just continues to consider God's hand, God's work, God's will. Derek Kidner says, it was the habit of Joseph's mind. I like that. Man, that's a good habit to have. Is that your habit? To see God doing everything, involved in everything, present in every circumstance. Well, verse nine, so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. And he said to him, in my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me. And on the vine, there were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out, its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now, Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. So I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Verse 12. Then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Okay, stop right there and notice his absolute total confidence. He is making a prophecy that is going to take place in three days. In three days, if he's wrong, it's gonna be known. Talk about sticking your prophetic neck out. This is gonna happen in three days. He's absolutely sure of it. He doesn't even say, test this. Now, that's kind of what we like to say. I think the Lord has this for you. I think the Lord is sharing this with you. Test it to be sure. Joseph doesn't say that. He says, no, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. The grapes, the wine goes into the cup. You're gonna hand it to Pharaoh. You're gonna be restored to your office. He doesn't hem-haw around. He doesn't give some kind of loose, broad, generic interpretation like you'd read in a horoscope. Something that could apply to anyone, but you read it and go, whoa, that's incredibly accurate. No, he nails this and he says, this is the way it will be fulfilled. This is what the dream means. And brothers and sisters, there's only one way to have this kind of complete confidence. One way, faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. We can only assume that Joseph knew this, heard this direct from God. Although we don't see that. All we hear is Joseph making the interpretation, but he knows it's from God. He shares it as if from God. And it reminds me something a friend of mine said many years ago, and I've repeated many times. There are many applications of the word of God, but there's only one interpretation. There was only one right interpretation of this particular dream, and Joseph gave it. That's the only one. How it would apply now in the life of the chief cupbearer is obvious. The interpretation and the application in this case are the same thing. But note this, number three. Not only is Joseph a servant of prisoners and a seer of God in all things, but Joseph's interpretations, number three, are spoke from God. They are spoke from God. This is a man who is in tune with and who is listening to God. Spoke from God. 2 Peter 2, verse 20, know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is of one's own interpretation. 
For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Let me address something here real quickly. We continue to hear people say, I don't hear God. How do you hear God? I wanna hear God. Show me one time in Joseph's life where the Bible tells us God audibly spoke to him. You won't find it. Show me one time where it says the Lord visually appeared to him. You won't find it. Now, I for one believe that he did. I believe that Joseph had such intimate communion with the Lord that he simply knew what was the Lord's intention. He knew as with this dream what the interpretation was. The Lord was with him and Joseph knew the Lord was with him. But what if, as we see in the scriptures, there wasn't a single time where Joseph heard the voice of God boom out, Joseph, tell the cupbearer this is the interpretation. What if Joseph just knew? See, there's a knowing. There is a knowing. Paul even describes it in 1 Corinthians 12 as the word of wisdom, word of knowledge. Sometimes God speaks into your heart and you just know that you know that you know. Yeah, but how do I know? <laughs> the confidence comes by faith. You know Jesus told you. It's the doubt that then undermines the knowing. You may be a person who you can say, I look back over the years and I don't think I've ever audibly heard from God, but I have known when God wanted me to do something. Then you have heard the Lord. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word Christ. Trust that, trust him. If you need to check it, make sure it aligns with his word. But I promise you that when you know that you know, his spirit testifies with my spirit, Romans chapter eight, that I am a child of God. And that is how the vast majority of people across 2,000 years have heard the Lord. We know, we know, we know that he's speaking. Well, verse 14, so Joseph gives the interpretation, but then in verse 14 he says, only to the chief cupbearer, keep me in mind when it goes well with you and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. Keep me in mind. It's the Hebrew word zakar, and it is literally remember me. Remember me. Do me a solid, man. Remember me when you come into Pharaoh's house. Joseph is not whining. He's not complaining about his situation, but he seems to know that prison is not the end game for him. He knows he's not there fairly. He's not complaining about it, but he's also not just passively sitting on it, dejected and all bummed out himself. He's making the best of this opportunity. He knows that the chief cupbearer is gonna be restored. Hey, remember me. Remember me, don't forget me. Well, read on. He says, for I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. That word dungeon, my friends, it's the same word as we saw back in Genesis 37. It's the same word used for the place where his brothers threw him. It's the word pit. It's bore in the Hebrew. He says, I've done nothing that they should have put me into this pit. So this prison house, this dungeon is to Joseph the same as the pit was to Joseph as he uses the same word. Verse 16, 
When the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. In the top basket, there were some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Isn't that cute? Then Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh off of you. Thus, it came about on the third day, Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his office and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, dream fulfilled three days later. Yet he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. So apparently there was wine at Pharaoh's birthday, but there was no cake. I'm sorry, but the chief baker condemned just as the interpretation of the dream. The chief cupbearer restored just as the interpretation of the dream. Think about this. Let's, let's mind this a little bit. Think about Pharaoh's cup, the cupbearer and the cup. The Pharaoh's cup is the key to the cupbearer's salvation. In verses 11 through 13, so right here in the sharing of the dream and in the interpretation of the dream, the cup is mentioned four times. Four times. There are four cups raised during Passover. Four primary cups in the meal. The fourth is the cup of redemption and the fourth cup in our story. And you can look at this, verse 11, the word cup is used three times. The fourth time it is used is in verse 15, where it, or verse 13, sorry, where it says, you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand. The fourth cup in Passover is the cup of redemption. The fourth cup in the story is the cup that the cupbearer places into Pharaoh's hand. And that fourth cup, that last cup, is the one about which Jesus said in Luke 22, verse 20, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. God is using this, my friends. We've talked about recently how God takes historical, factual, true events and writes them into the story of scripture, maintains them, preserves them for our reading so that we can learn from them that he is speaking supernaturally through history itself to point us to Jesus, to point us to the cup of redemption, the cup that is the new covenant in his blood, the fourth cup. Now, if you're watching, if you're quick, if you're reading all the way through here, you'll note that down further, when it's all fulfilled in verse 21, the word cup is used yet again. There's a fifth use of the word cup. Well, the fifth cup in the Passover is the cup of Elijah. So there is a fifth cup in the Passover. It's not really part of the 
the Passover Haggadah, that is the, the teaching or the, the speaking through the Passover, but it's, it's a fifth cup, so you can make that parallel if you'd like to, but the reality is five in the Bible is the number of grace. And so when all of this is fulfilled and the cupbearer raises that cup and gives it to Pharaoh, he is experiencing grace in his life being restored. Marvelous. What about the baker? How do you make a parallel there? Well, let me ask you, what was it that the bread represented in the baker's dream? The bread was his flesh. The bread that was eaten by the birds was his flesh. Jesus said in Luke twenty-two nineteen, when he had taken bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the parallel is absolutely perfect. While the cups of wine speak of redemption, speak of his blood, which is the new covenant that brings our redemption, and and the cupbearer was redeemed, so the bread spoke of the flesh, the body, hung up on the cross just as the chief baker was hung. And together, these two, the cupbearers and the baker's dreams and their fulfillments, graphically point to the fulfillment of Passover in Jesus Christ. It's a stunning reality. By the way, communion at the table of the Lord Jesus publicly proclaims both redemption and condemnation. We often think about, we focus on, we consider redemption when we're sharing the Lord's Supper, when we're taking communion together, we think about the restoration. We're thrilled in that. But if you've got your Bible nearby, grab it. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 11, picking up in verse 26, where Paul explains to us, no, it's not just about redemption, that the Lord's Supper also speaks condemnation. Watch this, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, Paul says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, which that verse by itself is just marvelous. We look back and proclaim his death. We look forward and proclaim his coming every time we share communion, which is why we do it a lot here at the Bridge Fellowship. You proclaim his death, the Lord's death, until he comes. Verse 27, therefore, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And that can bring no greater condemnation. To be guilty of the body and blood that was sacrificed for you, for me. But a man must examine himself and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The bread and the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And Paul is really getting after the church at Corinth here, saying, for this reason, many of you are sick and weak and a number sleep or have died. Paul is drawing a direct parallel between how they're taking communion and the health of the church at Corinth. He says, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be, here's the word, condemned along with the world. So then my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. 
If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment and the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Things were a mess at Corinth. Selfishness and eating and the wealthy in the church at Corinth were bringing all their food and eating it up and the poor would come in and they wouldn't have anything and there was no sharing going on. Some people were getting drunk on the wine. Paul describes all this in 1 Corinthians 11. For those who say, I wanna be like the first century church, I'm like, "Uh uh-uh. No, we wanna be like Jesus. But in that church, things were such a mess and, and Paul comes along and says, man, you are bringing condemnation on yourself. This marvelous symbol of the Lord's table, this sharing in communion together, man, it is supposed to be about redemption, the cup of redemption, the new covenant in his blood. And we're supposed to take it with that attitude. Listen, judging the body rightly does not mean coming into some dreamy religious trance at the Lord's table. It doesn't mean considering yourself all holy and righteous and together as you come to the Lord's table. It is recognizing the very body of Christ for whom he died. Let me put it more simply. That's your brothers and sisters. That's your family in Jesus. What Paul is saying is as we take communion, as we fellowship together around the table of the Lord, consider your brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I got brothers and sisters in Christ, believers in Jesus, that sometimes I don't get along with. I need to consider them. I need to think about them. Considering other believers as Jesus himself considers them, which is why he went to the cross. It's why the sacrifice was made. It is for all who believe on his name. And so take care that you Judge the body rightly. But don't become, please hear me on this, don't become a self-righteous judge of the body. The difference is I'm looking for who I can love. I am looking for who I can be restored to. I am looking for how forgiveness can be passed out. Even as Jesus said from the cross, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. I need to be looking. to Who can I forgive? Who can I be restored to? Do I have any issues, any problems with my brothers and sisters? Am I doing wrong by someone? I need to make that right. That is rightly judging the body. It is wrong to judge the body, however, to sit back and go, that guy, man, what a jerk. He shouldn't be taking communion this morning. He really shouldn't. She has no right walking up to the table of the Lord. I know how pompous she is. Man, that's self-righteous judgment of the body, and it is not yours and it is not mine. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Rick, sometimes I hear you talk about the church, and I hear you say that the church is, is too open to just allowing sin, or you say the church is really having a problem in this area, and you're right, I do. I talk about the church in general. I, I, I share from the scriptures prayerfully that sense of man. Judgment begins with the household of God. But you need to understand, when I talk about the church, I am talking about me. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about our attitude as a family. It's a very different thing to look at an individual member of that family and go, you're wrong, you're an idiot, you're stupid, you're a moron, and you guys are all imbeciles. See, that's wrongly judging the body of Christ. Paul said, 
have this attitude. In yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the attitude. That's rightly judging the body. And that will not bring condemnation. No, that just celebrates our redemption in Christ Jesus. Well, back to Joseph. The life stories of the cupbearer and the baker It's not the first time that God has used the staple foods of bread and wine to point us to Jesus. That's the whole idea here. It's why this story is being recounted. This is not the last time that God is gonna use bread and wine to point us to Jesus. And by the way, did you notice that with both of these men and both dreams, they were fulfilled in three days? Three days. Acts chapter 10, verse 40, Peter said God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God to us, get this, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Jesus is is into a good meal. So the bread and the wine that portrays, draws us to, makes us consider Jesus, realize, as he said, we will share that with him in the feast that is yet to come. Verse 23 tells us, sadly, after all this, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. It's all Joseph asked for. It's all he wanted. Remember me, Zakar. Remember me, he says. Keep me in mind. When you come out of here, because I'm not here justly, remember me. Can you relate to the disappointment of Joseph here? Have you ever been in that place? All right, this is it. Dreams fulfilled. Sorry, baker, but all right, cupbearer. This is good news. I've got a voice now. I'm sending someone out, and this is great. Oh, remember me. This is so like God to move in just this way. This is such a God thing. Check it out. Such a, such a, hey, hello, cupbearer? Remember me? Don't forget me? And days turned into months, turned into seasons, and chapter 41 begins telling us that Joseph would still serve in prison for two more years. Two years. This can't be the way it's supposed to be, Lord. I'm not supposed to still be stuck in this pit. Do you know that all told, Joseph spent approximately 10 years in this prison? It's been 13 years since he was sold as a slave by his brothers. He probably spent about two or three years in the house of Potiphar, rising up in that position before he was blamed and thrown into prison, and now a decade of his life in this prison waiting for release. How many times did he go over in his brain the dreams he had as a 17-year-old boy about his family bowing down like stars or or like stalks of bushels of wheat bowing down? How Lord, I thought that, but I'm here in 10 years, 10 years. 
Isaiah 55, verse eight, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Listen, two years after this, 10 years all told in prison, I, th I thought Joseph was Joseph the righteous before he even got into prison. I was impressed with him when he was a kid. And yet here we are, and this servant of prisoners, this seer of God, the man who interpretations of dreams were spoke by God. Number four, Joseph was seasoned in prison. He was seasoned. You could insert the word there, sanctified. Wasn't he already righteous, Yosef Hadzadik? Hey, Matthew 24, verse 45, Jesus said, who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Remember Jesus also said, he who is faithful in a little thing will be given much. And that's how God works. That's God's program. Joseph was gonna rise to the highest position in all of Egypt, which would be the highest in all the, all the known world, second only to Pharaoh. The Pharaoh, Pharaoh even said himself, and, and we see this, he takes his signet ring, he gives it to Joseph. He puts a gold chain around his neck he puts his, his robe on him. He says, you're the boss. You're in, I'm not gonna even worry about it. You got it, Joseph. He is gonna rise to the absolute heights and in God's method, in God's program, that kind of seasoning is never developed in glorious fame and fortune. Sanctification, especially when there is great responsibility to come, sanctification happens in humble circumstances. See, we have it backwards. We want to rise up on the wings of glory. And God's like, I'll tell you what, why don't you start by cleaning the toilets? Why don't you grab that broom over there and do some sweeping? Tell you what, I'm going to make you the boss in prison. Why don't you care for all the other prisoners? Now, you may say, oh, okay, okay, I get that. I understand that, but you know, as a spiritual concept, you know, he, he works with the humble. Listen, it's a real life concept. He works with the humble. He puts us in the humble place. Servants of prisoners. That's where we start. That's where the seasoning can happen. That's where we become, well, like Jesus. But how do I hold on when the seasoning is taking place? How do I hold on in the sanctification process? And my boy Christopher in Ghana has been asking me that question one way or another. I hope you're listening tonight, Christopher. He's been asking me this question. How, how, how do I hold on? Why is it so long? What is God doing? God is seasoning this young man. He's been seasoning me. It's not lost on me that personally, is a personal moment here, we're coming up on two years of this adoption, two years since we began this June. God is seasoning me, 
my family, Christopher, Judy, who has given herself to Christopher and to so many kids in Ghana. My friends, how do you hang on when it seems to go on and on? How do you hang on when the process seems to be two years or 10 years or many years beyond that? I'll give you some advice. Biblical. Remember the prisoner hanging on the cross next to Jesus. Remember he was there and he looks over. Luke 23, 42, he was saying, Jesus, remember me. Same words of Joseph. Joseph says, remember me to the chief cupbearer. The other criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus doesn't say in the kingdom. He says, you'll be with me in paradise. What's Jesus' answer to this criminal? I got you. I got you. Jesus is on his way to paradise. I'll explain that in another teaching. But Jesus is heading to the paradise side of Hades, and he says, today, you're gonna be with me. I got you, is his answer. Yeah, but the, but the thief, the criminal said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So listen, our days, months, even years of waiting here on earth are not the focus. Paradise is the destination. Eternity is the journey's end of hope. The kingdom is coming. Jesus says to you, says to me, I've got you. And the kingdom is coming. You and I, our call, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, Matthew 6, 33. Or as Jesus said in Revelation 2, verse seven, to him who overcomes. The overcomer, that's the one who is being seasoned even in prison. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Because you see, the kingdom will be a paradise. And there is a paradise of God beyond even the kingdom in the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. Oh man, if you missed our Revelation study, go back and listen to that. Just skip ahead to Revelation chapters 21 and 22. It's fantastic. That's our hope. That's our focus. That's how you stay put as a servant of prisoners in the prison. You trust God and you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Chapter 41, verse one. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream and behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile, there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, or in the Hebrew, lean of flesh. And they stood beside the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. And then Pharaoh awoke, <laughs> And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears thin and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. And then Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. 
Now in the morning, his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh. Note this, watch this. He spoke to Pharaoh saying, I would make mention today of my offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. And we had a dream on the same night, he and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his dream. Now, a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him. And he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one, he interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Note that. That last verse. Listen to this. It sounds like the cupbearer thinks Joseph restored him and Joseph hanged the baker. Read it again. Just as he interpreted for us, that is Joseph, so it happened, he restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Joseph restored him? Joseph hanged the chief baker? That's exactly what the cupbearer is saying. He credits Joseph with the restoration and the condemnation by the interpretation of the dream. And listen, in Hebrew, just as in English, the verb refers to the most immediate subject. He, in verse 13, is the Hebrew youth in verse 12. And so the cupbearer is saying, Joseph restored me and Joseph condemned the chief baker. And the cupbearer is right on target here. It was by Joseph's words that these things came to pass. You could say, number five in our listing, that Joseph has the seal of, of divine authority. As he said it, so it happened. Pilate was looking at Jesus, looking him over, and in John 19, verse 10, he said, do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. In another place, Matthew 16, I believe, Jesus said to Peter and the apostles, you have authority to forgive sin. You have authority to bind and authority to release. You have authority. And as you say, it shall have been done in heaven. That is, it's already been done in heaven. It's now been revealed to you. And as you speak it, you're just speaking what God has already intended. You have authority. And so when we speak with the words of God, we have this Seal of divine authority. When we're speaking the word of God, when we're sharing God's intentions, God's word by God's spirit, there is a divine authority there. Joseph's got it. He's got divine authority. Look at verse 14, continuing. Then Joseph, or, or Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Just a side note, Egyptians saw beards as low class. An ancient Egyptian painting, if you look at the old paintings, Jews and Arabs, Semites, are always depicted shamefully 
with beards. I'm looking at Jake, I see Josiah here, my bearded friends, and I'm reminded that Egyptians probably wouldn't like the Pacific Northwest very much. Verse 15, (laughs) Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Listen closely, verse 16, Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it's not in me. Ever feel that way? Man, it's just not in me. I just don't have it today. I don't have the strength. I don't have the patience. I don't have the wherewithal to deal with life. It is just not in me. But that's not where Joseph stops. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It's not in me. Never is. Even on my best day, it's not in me. But God brings the favorable answer. Joseph knows from whence favor comes. Psalm 121 verse one says, I will lift my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? I'll tell you, it doesn't come from the mountains. No, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's where it comes from. And so Joseph says, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And note this, mark this in your Bibles. The word favorable there is shalom. God will give you a peaceful answer. God will give you the answer of peace. But listen, listen, Joseph is the conduit. It's not in me, but God's gonna give you the answer of peace and it's gonna come through the mouth of Joseph. Why? Because Isaiah 26, verse three says, the steadfast of mind you will keep in shalom, shalom. Perfect peace. Because he trusts in you. Joseph just trusted the Lord. It's not in me, but he'll give you an answer. He'll give you the favorable, the peaceful answer. I love this. Joseph doesn't trust himself. It's not in me. He doesn't look back to his teenage dreams in his father's house or his promotions in Potiphar's house or his interpretive gift in the prison house. He says, it's not in me, but God will give the answer of peace. My friends, this is the, in my opinion, apex moment of this seasoned saint. This is where it all comes together. This is now the humble Joseph saying, God will give peace. Of all the moments in his life, this is where it all comes to bear. And we see the sanctification process of three years a slave in Potiphar's house and 10 years a prisoner that Joseph says, it's just not in me. God will give peace. Paul says in Philippians 4 verse 6, a familiar verse to many of you, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace is in Joseph. Even though it isn't in me, he said, the peace in him doesn't come from him comes from the Lord. In fact, we're gonna see this more vividly where it comes from in just a minute, but read on, verse 17. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph. 
In my dream, he said, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. And behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh, marsh grass. Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I have never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet, when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. And then I awoke. Now, that's disturbing. He says, verse 22, I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears, full and good, came up on a single stalk. And lo, seven ears, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind, came up after them. And the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. Well, I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, <laughs> Pharaoh's dreams are one. They're the same thing. He says, God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Here comes this complete confidence again. The seven good cows are seven years. And the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are also seven years. And the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come. And all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. My friends, listen closely. Make the parallel. The seven-year famine of Egypt. This is the first time in the Bible where we have a parallel indication of the coming indignation of God. Seven years of famine. A seven-year period of time yet to come on the earth that is called the tribulation. Seven years of famine over Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world. Seven years of tribulation is coming on this world. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, that is <laughs> limited to seven years, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And Daniel, in Daniel chapter nine, verses 24 through 27, Luke mentioned this last night in his teaching. Daniel prophesied its duration as a shabua. That is a Hebrew word, shabua, meaning a unit of seven, seven years, seven-year famine, seven-year tribulation that is coming. Revelation 6 through 19 describes two, three-and-a-half-year periods of this seven years. The first half, Revelation 11, verses 2 and 3, calls it 1,260 days and 42 months. That's three-and-a-half years. The second half is called, in Revelation 12, 14, a time times 
and half a time, three and a half years. It is all told the darkest hours of what Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, and Zechariah, what they called the day of the Lord, seven years. It's the burning furnace of Malachi, chapter four, verse one. It's the Lord's indignation of Isaiah, chapter 26, verse 20, chapter 34, verse two. And these are just a sampling of verses that refer to this seven-year tribulation. It's called the time of Jacob's distress, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse seven. And Revelation 6, verse 16 says, the people of the earth will say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? This seven-year famine that Pharaoh dreamed up of, of the, the lean cows swallowing up the fat cows, of the, of the scorched stalks swallowing up the heads of grain that were plump and full. That seven-year famine speaks directly by way of warning, not only of what came on Egypt in history, but what is coming on the world in prophecy. Are you sure, Rick? I'm absolutely sure. This has been warned about since the seventh generation from Adam, at least since then, Jude tells us, Jude's 14. That I saw the Lord coming with many thousands of his holy ones coming to render, to execute judgment on the earth. In word, in type, in picture, in prophecy, even in promise, this has been said in all of history again and again and again. The Lord has warned the time of his indignation and wrath. The day of the Lord is coming. Are we listening? Are we ready? Now listen, if the seven-year Egyptian famine is indeed a type of that coming seven-year tribulation period of God's wrath, and I believe it is, there's something we've got to understand here. It is preceded by seven years of plenty. Sleek, fat, fleshy cows good beef, plump, good, full ears of grain, oh, bread to eat. My friends, by all measures, the world has never known sleek, fat prosperity like it has in the last several years. We are at the apex of all history, the most plump, sleek, fat people in the world on earth since history began. There is no comparison. Yes, there's still poverty. Jesus said the poor you will always have with you. And that is even more judgment on the rich and on the wealthy who take no care or concern for those who don't have anything. Yes, there is still struggle in the world today, but my friends, the United States of America has never been more sleek or fat or plump or full. COVID-19 is, yes, it's a disruption in all of this plenty. And I believe personally that it is simply a warning of a severe famine that is about to hit this world. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 37, 
the coming of the Son of Man will just be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. That word took means caused them to cease. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field and one will be taken, that is received unto and the other will be left. Two women will be, note this, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, received unto Jesus, and the other will be left. Why are they grinding at the mill? Because there's plenty. Because these are days where there's, there's more than enough, several hundred times over, more than enough food to feed the entire planet. We are in days of fatness and plenty. And if the parallel holds, seven years of plenty are immediately followed by the seven-year famine. I believe we are in the years of plenty right now. I think we're at the end. So wait, so you're saying we're about to, I'm saying it could happen any time that those days of tribulation, that the wrath of God poured out on a Christ-rejecting world, yes, could come at any time. Now, biblically, what precedes that is those who are taken, received unto. We call it the rapture, the raptus in Latin, the harpazo in Greek of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, a passage we have been over and over and over together here at the bridge because I'll tell you what, we are not gonna shy away from preaching prophecy and talking about what is coming and recognizing where we are in the last of the last days and the end of the end times. Seven years of plenty, my friends, we are in plenty, will be followed by the seven-year tribulation. By the way, back in Genesis 41, why is it that this dream is repeated twice? You ever thought about that? I mean, you read it in the passage, and first, the passage tells us, so it's written in the first half of chapter 41. Well, then Pharaoh goes on and recounts the whole thing again at the last part of chapter 41. Why is it repeated twice? And why, then, does God give warning with two dreams? So note that, not only are the dreams repeated twice in the Bible, but God warns twice. He warns with the cows, and he warns with the grain. Why? Two reasons. Number one, confirmation. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So what we have here in the pages right before us are a recounting of the dreams twice, confirming the reality, confirming the dreams, and the fact that the dreams themselves are twofold cows and grain. We have two witnesses, so the matter is confirmed. Confirmation. But secondly, Joseph says they warn of that, that all of this is, number two, coming quickly. Coming quickly. Verse 32 again, now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, confirmed, and God will quickly bring it about. So fast on the heels of these years of plenty, the famine is coming. It will overtake the plenty, 
And note, it will overtake in such a way such that the plenty will be all but forgotten. It will be nothing but scorched heads and gaunt cows. Jesus said in Revelation chapter three, verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on earth. And coronavirus is not the test. It is prelude, if my understanding is correct here. Jesus says in Revelation 3.11, I am coming quickly. (laughs) Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. But Joseph goes on, stay with me. We have a little more to do. Now, let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise, he says, and set him over the land of Egypt, he says. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land. Let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. All of a sudden, we realize all of Joseph's work in Potiphar's house has prepared him for this, as well as his time in the prison house. Then let them gather all the food, verse 35, of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land, for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. And then verse 38, Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? My friends, note this, a divine spirit is literally Ruach Elohim, the spirit of God. So now Pharaoh, like Potiphar, sees God in Joseph sees that the Lord is with Joseph and says that Joseph has the spirit of God. What we're saying here is the servant of prisoners, the seer of God with interpretation spoke from God who was seasoned in prison and has the seal of godly authority. Number six, final one in our notes, Joseph has the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. This is the first mention in the Bible of the spirit indwelling a human being. Note that in humble, righteous Joseph. What does that tell you? It tells me that the presence of the Lord in life is a very humbling thing and comes when a life is humble and repentant before the Lord. The presence of the Holy Spirit is never for self-glorification. The presence of the Holy Spirit, when he is truly present in your life, you know it is not in me, it is God who brings peace. He is in me, but that's not me, that's God. That's his spirit. Verse 39, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed them in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. 
He had him ride in his second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee, bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. How did Joseph prepare for this? Slavery in prison. Note that. He wasn't a child star on the Disney Channel. No, he was a slave. And now second over all Egypt, verse 44, moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or his foot in all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh named Joseph <laughs> Sapanat Paneah. Sapanat Paneah, which means God speaks and he lives. The idea of the name here is that as God's word came to and through Joseph, Joseph himself was preserved, and so was all of Egypt. Sapanat Paneah. I'll just mention this. You can look into this if you want to. It's curious, it's interesting, but an old Jewish legend claims that each letter of this Egyptian name, Sapanat Paneah, has meaning. That if you look in the Egyptian lettering of the name, that it actually spells out seer, redeemer, prophet, supporter, interpreter of dreams, clever, discreet, wise. Interesting. So he's given this name by Pharaoh, and it continues there in verse 45. He gave him Asenat, that is she who is of Nat, in a T-H, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. On is Hierapolis, or the city of the sun in Egypt. Gave Asenat to him as wife, Potiphera is uh, a priest. It is not a relation. He's not a relation to Potiphar, so don't confuse yourself there. It's just a priest of the city of Hierapolis. So he gives him this daughter as his wife, and Joseph went forth over all the land of Egypt. And when Joseph was 30 years old, he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Note this, don't miss it. He is the same age as Jesus. When Jesus began his public ministry, when Jesus said, this is the favorable year of the Lord. Joseph began with the seven years of plenty, favorable years, years of grace. My friends, note this. Jesus said, this is the favorable year of the Lord. But we now are at the end of the favorable year. The favorable year speaks of the age of grace, these last days, here and now. And they are rapidly coming to a close. Jesus said that at the beginning. This is the favorable year of the Lord. And Joseph stood up at the age of 30 and began his work for the seven years of plenty. Notice also that in verse 45 that Joseph was given a pagan Gentile for a wife. That's like Jesus, isn't it? The bride of Christ filled with pagan Gentiles who came to faith through Jesus. This pagan Gentile, her name is Asenat, again, which means she who is of, of Nat. Nat was a name of an Egyptian goddess. She has a name in Greece, Helena, a name in Rome, Minerva. And by the way, you can see her. You can see this idol, this goddess. She stands at the pinnacle atop the U.S. Capitol building. I can't help but wonder, however, if the 
influence of Joseph the righteous was heavy on this Gentile bride. We don't know any more about Asenath and what happens. We know she's gonna bear him two children. Read on. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities and he placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring for it was beyond measure. See, this is wisdom. We're seeing right now states freaking out because we're trying to figure out how do we restart an economy we were not prepared to stop. States in debt, the federal government in debt, humanity in debt, rather than being prepared. Man, it's like the coming of Jesus. You don't know the day or the hour. He's been talking about preparation for 6,000 years. Are we prepared to go when he calls? Country wasn't prepared for coronavirus, I can tell you that. Well, Joseph got Egypt, prepared for this famine immeasurably. Verse 50, now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh. Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And he named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. This cracks me up. We're gonna talk more about these two boys, but I love their names. They come up significantly later on in this story toward the end of Genesis. But Manasseh means forgetful and Ephraim means fruitful. These are his son's names, forgetful and fruitful. I think I would have been fruitful. I would, you know, forgetful, what? Did you do your chores? Well, Forgetful and fruitful, the two boys. Listen, Joseph speaks with thanksgiving in these two names. Forgetful, you've made me forget all that was past. And fruitful, you've just blessed me beyond measure in this land. The key, listen, the key, listen, the key to being fruitful as a child of God is being forgetful of all that lies behind. Philippians chapter three, verse 13, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's finish this. You're saying, Rick, you've been going for a while. I told you to hit pause. Verse 40, where are we? 53, when the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said. Then there was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt, there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, go to Mike Pence. I'm sorry, no. <laughs> See, like vice president in charge, forget. Sorry. Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. And when the famine was over the face of all the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Verse 57, all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph 
because the famine was severe in all the earth. One last thing, and I believe this brings it all together. Did you catch what Pharaoh said in verse 55? Let me read it to you again. Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. Sound familiar? John chapter two, verse one tells us, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Jesus performed his first miracle at that wedding in Cana, elementally changing water into wine. Joseph stored up grain for bread. Jesus changed the water to wine. Joseph stored up the grain for bread, bread and wine. Again, the picture comes back around to us. My friends, the Lord knows what he's doing. God has designed this world. He has called us clearly again and again. He gives the word of peace. He says, come to my table and receive the cup of redemption and eat of the body of Christ, the bread and the wine. Man, whatever he says to you, do it. Just do it. Holy Father, Your word tonight is so multifaceted and yet it comes down to that one simple truth that is not in me. God is the one who speaks peace. You are the one. And so we worship you. We proclaim and declare the name of Jesus and we do it, Lord, across the airwaves. I gotta share, I love what my brother Les prayed earlier. Lord, that The devil is the prince of the power of the air, but we're taking over the airwaves to speak the glory of God in Christ Jesus, to to tell of the gospel, seen here in dreams of bread and wine, seen in times of plenty and famine, understood in the body and the blood of Jesus. We come proclaiming your glory. We come worshiping your majesty and your honor. You are awesome, our God. Jesus, your word is amazing to us. And we come now to the table of the Lord to commune together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.